0: Welcome to Health and Veritas. I'm Harlan Krumholtz,
1: and I'm Howie Foreman. We are physicians and professors at Yale University, and we're trying to get closer to the truth about health and healthcare. This week, we will be speaking with Dr. Kristen Maddox, a Professor of Population and Quantitative Health Sciences and Associate Dean for Veterans Affairs at UMass Chan Medical School. But first, You can't begin any discussion right now without discussing the tragedy uh, that is going on in Ukraine. And I just want to say, you said it last week, this is the type of crisis that uh, has vast health impacts. Some of those are short run, some of those are going to be very long run, but today a women's and children's hospital was bombed. And you can't not think about this in the context of war crimes and in the context of of deep humanitarian and health impact on a population is rapidly ev- evacuating their homes, and um, I'm just curious to know what, what on top of mind for you right now.
0: Well, I think it is a time for for humanity to come together and exert its values. We know that this isn't just a thing about. I mean, Ukraine is the moment, but there are other countries where people are also experiencing immense tragedies that are being inflicted human on human. In the course of war zones and and really what is unethical killing of civilians and we need to as a society as a world think hard about this the the Ukraine issue in part because it's right up close to us and we understand the threat that's being exerted by by Russia and seemingly willingness to to attack nuclear power plants I mean Howie we could be on the on the edge of a catastrophe a health catastrophe for large swaths of the continent if these if these power plants are breached and then today we were seeing a maternity hospital bomb people being killed uh, people being told that there's safe passage and then being being targeted it, it's it's just uh heart-wrenching and uh and i'm i'm glad to see the world coming together i i really don't know can't say i'm smart enough to know what the end game is here and how we how we get through this but but we have to know what we're standing up for, and and when it's really basic decency, the ability of people to live their lives, it, you know, the stark contrast here between the attackers and those who are being attacked is so bright, and and so galvanizing. It's it's something to see the world come together. But but yeah, I you know, as you know, supplies are are short. I was seeing someone having to go across the country because she could no longer get her chemotherapy. I mean, there there's, there's many tragedies within the macro tragedy. And then, like I said, looming looming real big catastrophes like like the nuclear issue. So anyway, we I think we're all watching with bated breath, trying to figure out what we can do to help. I will say it was great to see Yale New Haven Hospital uh, contribute a million dollars worth of medical supplies. And I know many others around the country are doing the same. In addition, I like the ingenuity like you know we've bought some airbnb rooms it's a way to transfer cash to people in ukraine so that they can have some some ways of doing that there have been others who have thought of other creative ways to that we can be supportive of just individuals on the ground and, and what i mean by that is no one's staying at the airbnb airbnb is a company set it up so that you could essentially rent a room as a means to be able to transfer money and, uh, without any anyway,
1: administrative I, fees to the credit of Airbnb, I mean they really any, made an extra effort. And these are
0: effort. very creative, very creative ways of doing things. Meanwhile, we're seeing Russia shut down, right? Really become isolated and and information flows limited. So anyway, I, 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 we had to start we'll, here. We'll, I don't know. We have thoughts, but what do you think?
1: Now I would just add one more thing, which is to me, uh, a, you know, a sad side effect is we have a lot of students at Yale and throughout the country. Uh, at university who are of Ukrainian descent and of Russian descent and um, uh, in different ways they are all affected by this this tragedy and uh, they absolutely are not complicit in anything and I feel equally sad for our our Russian students that are on our campus as I do for the Ukrainian students Um, and I can see on their faces the tension and strain and I see a lot of them rising up to, to activate and help with this cause. And, you know, we did a, uh, there was an event in front of uh, the medical school this week. There was an event on the New Haven Green, an event in front of Yale University, all in the last 10 days, all organized by our Ukrainian students.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. And especially we want to protect our Russian students who shouldn't be bearing the consequences of this. And, and, and we should be engaging and making sure they're okay too, while they're here with us. But the other thing, just finally, is like still, it's remarkable to see Zelensky, and and I think for our students, for us, to show what leadership can do uh, and how it can galvanize. I think it's an entirely different story. This unfolds entirely differently if there's a, if they're different leaders. Someone had fled, had not been able to inspire a nation, and for all the times we think that individuals can't can't really make a difference, this guy is making a difference, and it it really should uh, inspire us all to know that. Values matter. Amen. Excited to introduce Dr. Kristen
1: Maddox. Dr. Maddox is a Professor of Population and Quantitative Health Sciences and Associate Dean for Veterans Affairs at the University of Massachusetts Chan Medical School. Her research focuses on improving veteran health and veterans administration care coordination, especially for pregnant and postpartum women veterans. She is the co director of the VA Community Care Research Evaluation and Knowledge Center, which helps share high quality, high impact research on VA community care. She is also a double alum of our School of Public Health, earning her master's and her PhD here. So, Kristen, you have contributed an incredible amount to the literature on health and health care for veterans populations, and particularly women veterans. Um, and, And let me just point out for our listeners, we're talking about dozens of papers each year that you're either contributing to or leading, so you've really made a mammoth contribution to this area. Can you tell us a little about what drew you to this work and what you have found remarkable?
2: Yeah, so um, it was actually very accidental that I that I got into women's health. Um, I did my PhD at Yale um, in in HIV stigma, discrimination types of things. Um, so when I took my first job at the VA, basically a year after I graduated from the PhD program, I was working with Amy Justice in her um, HIV and Aging study. Um, and I thought that is where my career would go, um, you know, thinking about things like stigma and discrimination and special populations. Um, and I'd been there about a year. about a year and realized that, I don't know, it just wasn't sticking, I felt like I wasn't a clinician, and for some reason, that felt like it wasn't working as well um, in that particular study. I felt a little bit disadvantaged that I didn't have a clinical background, and, you know, somebody introduced me to someone, uh, you know, who, who was doing women's health in the VA and encouraged me to talk to them, and ironically, that person, I, I think at least Howie here, Harlan Noser, uh, Becky Yano, who is in uh, Los Angeles. Um, So basically, one thing led to the other, and I started to to do more women's health. And this was back in around 2008. um, And I began to study this kind of very interesting area, which seems archaic now, but it was called fee basis care back in the day, which was basically this very small amount of care that the VA paid for that was not... Um, provided in the VA. So, you know, one of the most interesting things about my work and what has drawn me to it over these years is that, you know, women only make up about eight to 10% of the VA uh, veteran, you know, population that we care for in the, in the VA. And so when you want to talk about, you know, underserved populations where, you know, it's just a whole set of services that, you know, uh, that women need that men don't need, um, you know, I, I got very interested in that area, and so the whole idea of fee basis care was basically that, you know, as, as wonderful as the VA is, there are things that the VA just doesn't do, and one of the things that the VA doesn't do at any of its 164, whatever the current number is, VA facilities across the country is that we don't we don't provide pregnancy care. So. Uh, once a woman gets pregnant, it's gotten better, but we used to say, good luck, <laughs> go out in the community and find a provider and uh, we'll pay for it. Um, and then come on back when you're done with that pregnancy. Um, and so I've basically sort of built my whole career on on understanding that experience for women veterans, um, you know, trying to figure out if there's a provider in your area that will care for you, if they take VA insurance, which has been a whole nightmare in itself, um, And then just, you know, kind of balancing, receiving all of that care outside a healthcare system and then having to come back into that healthcare system. So, you know, I think what has kept me in it these years is just that real commitment to understanding how to serve this very small population and to make sure that they have access to the same services and the same benefits that male veterans do.
1: And and just to add one more point to that, that I was just noting, it looks like women veterans will be uh, doubling in numbers relative to the overall veteran population over the next 20 years. So this is, this is an issue that the VA does need to address. It's, it's not gonna stay small if it is small now
2: yeah it's not. I mean you know when I started in two thousand and eight, you know the number of women veterans we had in the v a <laughs> wasn't 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 very big it was I don't even know that it was probably two hundred thousand yet um and the latest numbers I've seen were basically well over a half a million uh women veterans are now using the v a and so you're absolutely right i mean we're still, you know, women in terms of the larger male population of veterans using the VA, that that number hasn't moved much, that 10%-ish number. But, you know, there are more women coming to the VA. And because women come, you know, after their military duty, many of them have thoughts or plans or are actively pregnant. And so it's been that sort of little niche that I've been interested in learning more about.
0: I'm so happy to have you here, Kristen. You know, we had the opportunity to work together early on. And I wanted to share with the listeners about actually what an amazing contribution you made to my career in, in the course of it. You were a PhD student and we were working together and I was working on a project that was attempting to reduce the the time to treatment for patients coming in with heart attacks. There, there had been a long legacy of delays that that had led to higher higher rates of mortality than, than could have been achieved if we had higher quality care. And, and we were in the course of pursuing this largely as a traditional quantitative research project and and you turned to me and you said well what about involving betsy bradley who has been on this program and is now president of vassar and became a very close colleague of mine i knew betsy we'd worked together i'd actually worked with her when she was a phd student but we had we'd kind of gone different directions and and it's a it's an interesting thing you know, by you leaning in and actually making actively making a suggestion uh, that I hadn't thought of. Uh, it kind of sparked an, an entirely new direction of the research because I reached out to Betsy, and we transformed this project from largely a traditional quantitative research project into a mixed methods project—one that it combined, melded together both quantitative and qualitative research, the the sort of nuts and bolts statistics and epidemiology with listening intently to people and trying to derive insights from from those discussions. And I had never been really trained in that. And and uh, and I had a lot to learn. And, and, and anyway, I want to thank you publicly for that. That that was such an important thing to do. Betsy was so receptive to the idea and then became really a, a partner, a really tremendous partner in this. And, and you've continued to do actually qualitative research in a lot of your work. I, as I've read through it, there's a lot of insights you've derived from talking, listening, and channeling the people that you're talking to. So I wonder if you could share a little bit about your experience with with qualitative research? You know, the, the mainstream medical research community is still reluctant to embrace the idea that that qualitative research is, is up to snuff. You know, our major journals still make it very difficult to publish that work. And so how, what's your experience of doing it? Why do you continue to do qualitative research? And where do you see it in the future?
2: Wow. It's great. I mean, I, and I have to thank you because when I did introduce you to Betsy, you know, both of you very graciously allowed me to, to, to work on that project. And, you know, I, I hadn't done qualitative research either. I didn't know anything about beta blockers. Um, and it's Oh, funny that's right. We that started
0: on the beta blocker project. I <laughs> you forgot started about First beta. of all, you were great. You were just so great to <laughs> way well, you jumped in, but that's right. That preceded the time. Actually, mm-hmm. I forgot how far back this stretches. Yep. That you was remember? actually the beta blocker project, that, the med that slows the heart yep. rate. And, and we were looking at, it, yep. it had been recommended and many people hadn't been using it. Mm-hmm. Oh, I forgot about that, that's right. It started oh. way back then.
2: Oh, absolutely, and it blew my mind because I remember thinking about the methods at that time that you and Betsy had decided upon. And you had this whole list of hospitals You know across the united states some were high performing some were low performing and you know we made the decision that we were going to interview you know some some stakeholders from high performing hospitals some stakeholders from low performing i think we might have done you know mid too but it's interesting because that methodology has has always stayed with me um in terms of like really thinking about different ways to get at Kind of what's going on at at a variety of different places, and kind of you know sampling in a way accordingly um, to you know to, to performance, um, and so you know, that is that's how I got my qualitative start is on that beta blocker study again not knowing anything about beta blockers, but it's funny because that has um, that has continued over my career. I was at the West Haven VA until I think 2009, and then have been up here in Northampton ever since. And um, I continue to to be the qualitative lead on so many different types of, of research projects. I mean, definitely I do my own women's health research, but I've been doing a ton of um, pain um, care research over the past couple of years with collaborators at, at the West Haven VA and Yale and, you know, over the course of my career, I've had the opportunity to talk to so many different people about so many important clinical issues. And I oftentimes have to laugh because I go into these interviews and I may not know anything about, <laughs> you know, beta blockers or, you know, the VA's pain management strategy or, or things like that. But over the course of the interviews, you know, by the time I'm done, I consider myself an expert in that area because I have the opportunity to talk to all of these, you know, different stakeholders, you know, all across the country. In all kinds of different fields and I think that you know I always tell people that I train that you know if you if you keep working at it and you really commit yourself to qualitative research it just opens up so many um, so many avenues in your career because you just you know everybody as you know probably Harlan everybody is looking for a qualitative expert of some kind on their grant and I think I, I feel like the phone rings off the hook. Constantly about people wanting help on this or that. And I'm always happy to help them because I always feel like it just broadens my knowledge and my horizons as well. So I'm going to put that back on you. That's all thanks to you back in the year 2000. <laughs> 22 years ago, Harlan, you helped me. Oh my learn about <laughs> Research. So it goes both ways, actually.
0: That's true. But let
1: me let me let me step in because what you're saying about Harlan I think is true, but it's really true about you now. You assemble teams of researchers to do large projects across a large spectrum, and and I realize some of them you're involved in, but maybe not leading. But an awful lot of them you're leading right now. How do you build a team of of scholars that are going to help you create a methodologically sound study that's going to impact policy. How do you think about that?
2: Well, and I I, I think just to, to bounce off something you said at the very end there, Howie, I mean, one of the best things about being in the VA, and 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 the VA, I know, has its pluses and minuses. I've had a tremendous experience over my 16 years, and but I think the biggest reason is because, you know, I was trained in health policy at Yale, and more than any other place, I feel like the work I do in the VA really does impact practice and policy. And I mean, knowing knowing that is is incredible. So, you know, you have this this incredible community of VA researchers across the country and, you know, we've built a strong community. And so almost any, you know, to answer your question about building teams, I mean, I don't just have my small team in Western Massachusetts. You know, I have access to this just very collegial group of investigators across the country and you know whether it's you know <laughs> cardiologists or you know pain care specialists or you know people who focus on obesity there are so many people that you know I can always choose from to you know to build that team you know i would say that one of the one of the other things that has i think really led to success and i'm going to credit VA Connecticut for this is back to that, you know, first study that I worked on with, with Amy Justice, you know, she had uh, a very large cohort study of, of, of HIV infected veterans. And it was a study on HIV and aging, but it was a cohort study. And, you know, I didn't know anything about cohort studies, but, you know, had the opportunity to kind of watch it up close for a couple of years and see all the different things you could do with a, you know, with a prospective cohort. And so, When I started my work, I decided to build this, you know, prospective cohort of pregnant veterans across the United States. And so we, back in 2013, we built this study that's called COMFORT, which is, was a prospective cohort study of pregnant veterans to try to understand, you know, healthcare utilization, um, but also healthcare conditions, but also the very first study to understand kind of what happened to the babies of, you know, of, of women veterans. And so we built this incredible cohort study of 15 sites across the country, ranging from, you know, Los Angeles to Dallas to Tampa. You know, I wanted some rural sites like you know, Fargo, North Dakota and Iowa, I even included San Juan, Puerto Rico. Um, and so that cohort is now, you know, well over 1,200, you know, pregnant and postpartum veterans. And we've been able to leverage that cohort to ask so many different types of questions over the years, um, that, that really nobody has posed before. So I feel like we've really pushed the study forward. We've, we've pushed the field forward in the VA of understanding women veterans and pregnant veterans. Um, and I think it is thanks to that, to, to understanding the importance of cohort studies to you know understand populations and how things work.
0: You know, I think such a great topic uh, this week uh, where we have International Women's Day to be talking about women's health like this. I, I, when I look at your work, Kristen, I sort of think... You're making visible what has been commonly invisible or, or hidden in plain sight. I mean, there's there have been increasing numbers of women veterans, and yet, you know, when people think of veterans and when the veteran services were configured originally, you know, that wasn't, I mean, pregnancy, wow, that's very different than what most people think about when they think about the VAs or they think about veterans getting care, and then you've written about uh, sexual victimization and particularly among lesbian and bisexual veterans and you're, you're really bringing to to the forefront the perspective of, of a lot of people who again may not be seen in the sort of traditional ways but actually really are what makes up our military today and we need mm-hmm. to be able to have a broader vision about right. who they are and their risks and so forth. What well, As you do this work now what do you think is the most important thing next to be doing to to try to make sure that we're looking out for all of our veterans, and particularly, uh, in for you, the women veterans who are, are it does seem like incurring a lot more risk, a, a, a lot more ha- you know hazardous behavior, and sometimes when they get back, it you know it affects outcomes.
2: Yeah, well, actually, we just got funded to do the next thing, um, and so I'm really excited about this project. Um, so recently, probably about a year ago, uh, we wrote a paper looking at racial ethnic differences in C sections um, among pregnant among veterans in the VA, and we found just insane differences um, in terms of C section rates um, when you compare basically women of color with white women. You know, as you know, probably across the United States, C section averages are About 31% higher for Black women, but you know Black women are about 35%. White women maybe 30, 31%. At some of our study sites, particularly in the South—Durham, Little Rock, uh, Dallas—we were we were seeing C-section rates for women, Black women, veterans of 70%. Mm, Um, So Durham, Little Rock, just New Orleans, just ridiculous rates. And and across the board, they were never that for for white women. Um, So, you know, we poked around in the literature a little bit to think about, you know, interventions. And it turns out that, you know, there's this idea that's been growing over the past couple of years about supporting particularly women of color uh, in pregnancy and delivery with a doula. Um, So basically a trained professional who's not a medical professional, but a labor support person who can help negotiate, help communicate, that type of thing. Now, the interesting thing about this is that technically in the VA, (laughs) this is not, um, you know, something that the VA pays for. It's never been done in the VA. Um, But, you know, we made a convincing case that, you know, we really need to tackle this. And with, you know, nationwide rates of you know, maternal morbidity and mortality among black women, we thought, you know, we need to to really go after this. So we got funded. Um, so we are actually in the next week or two launching the first ever uh, doula intervention for pregnant veterans. And we'll be focusing on women veterans in Durham, North Carolina and New Orleans, which were some of the biggest disparities we saw. Um, but by all accounts, talking to pregnant veterans, this is absolutely something they want. And You know, some of the interviews we've been doing lately with 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 black veterans, um, it turns out that they really feel like they are not given a choice about whether or not to have a C-section. They'll go into the doctor. Some of them will be told this practice only does C-sections, which is the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. Um, if they want to try, you know, a vaginal birth after C, they're not, they're, you know, they're really not allowed to do so. So, you know, it gets at those issues of, you know, structural racism and discrimination that I've always been interested in, but I feel like now we're really going to be able to tackle this, I think, which is, which is, I think, a real service to our pregnant veterans.
0: That's great.
1: Yeah. We had early, early on, um, in the podcast, we had uh, Marinette Diabet from Work for Mothers talking about the importance of access to doulas and you know, the extraordinarily high rates of maternal mortality that occur, yeah. um, particularly in, in black women uh, and notably in the South, just as you mentioned. Mm-hmm. So this is a population that we just do not do well by and particularly among our veterans where we owe them so much.
2: Right, right. And remember, we kind of in some ways lose track of them. I mean, we don't lose track of them, but because they leave the VA healthcare system, we have less ability to kind of oversee what happens in the community. Um, and so, you know, again, that's just something that we have to really focus on and fix because it's it's an injustice to these women.
0: You, you know, Kristen, I want to just take you on one little other detour here in terms of the things that you've been working on you're one of the nation's experts on community care programs in the yeah. VA and have written extensively on this. And for for people listening, since around 2014, the Department of Veteran Affairs really dramatically shifted the ways in which veterans res- can receive care. And, and the notion was that, that really people should have more choices. It wasn't just a matter of providing care in one of the, I don't know, what is it, 170 plus VA medical centers, but, but that people could have a choice to go to other sites of of care and so they they passed this thing the choice act and the mission act and and that would provide veterans with with more opportunities to receive care with community providers that that were partnering with the va and and i know you've written extensively about this and especially in the last couple years just before the pandemic i guess you know there were we were like almost three million veterans had been referred for community care i'm sure that in the pandemic that's continued to grow what what's your Sense of is that program been successful? Is it? What are the issues with it? Uh, what What are you thinking about it now?
2: Uh, we're in a tricky place right now in the VA. So, it, <laughs> the the Mission Act, from my perspective, was a really incredible opportunity for veterans to get care in the community. And there are definitely people who feel like all care should stay in the VA. But we also forget like. As you both know, I'm from Montana, (laughs) the closest VA in Montana is always going to be eight or nine hours away. And, you know, it used to be back in the fee care days that we wanted people to drive eight or nine hours to the nearest VA. And it's just veterans don't want that. It's not practical. So, you know, both choice and mission gave veterans the opportunity to get care in their community if it was sort of closer in made sense. And so it was a great piece of legislation. However, what has happened, and this is this was, I think, part of the turning point of why we're a little bit conflicted now, is part of that mission legislation was that was an urgent care benefit, uh, which basically allowed veterans like the rest of us to go to, you know, CVS or Walgreens or whatever if you had a, you know, sore throat or something like that. <laughs> As you can imagine, uh, costs just went crazy Um, just our our community care budget went through the through the roof with urgent care and also there were some changes in emergency care that made that a little bit easier to get to so we're now in a situation where in the VA we are re-looking at the way that we do things and there's initiatives in place to encourage veterans to stay in the VA to you know rethink some of those choices so honestly i think that we're at this point where there's a lot of tension between sending veterans out and keeping them in um lots of budgetary you know sort of reasons and so it's hard i i I think the va is really struggling with this right now we have a uh you know there's offices in dc that used to have be that we had a separate community care office and a separate access to care office and now those two major offices are merging which you know we're going to figure out what that's about Um, so I think I, I, it's a great question, Harlan, and and I, I I think that it's it's we're in a hard place right now. And the thing is, those veterans who have enjoyed the opportunity to go into the community for the past couple of years, many of them want to continue to enjoy that opportunity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I,
0: I bet you don't see us turning back on that, right? That would be hard. Yeah,
2: yeah no, I don't. So that's not part of any sort of legislation I've seen. But to kind of you know have those conversations with veterans, and and you know, Harlan, back. I mean this whole thing started back in you know 2014 because there were you know really important issues in the VA related to wait times and you know people died and you know terrible things happened so Remember, this this all started eight years ago because of of wait time issues in the VA, but now the thing that we're struggling with, I'm sure you know, is cardiology, like there's wait times in the community too, right? So now we're kind of in this funny place where is it, you know, is it going to take longer to get care in the community because of wait times or is it going to take longer in the VA and it's a toss-up, so...
1: Well, I just want to say, like, you started off by saying that you're not a clinician, but, you know, clinician or not, you're an incredibly empathic and compassionate person who is ideally suited to look out for these populations that don't often have people looking out for them. You've made a huge impact on the veterans' populations to, to date, and I expect you'll continue to do that, and we're just so thankful to have you sharing uh, your experiences with us on on the Health and Veritas podcast.
0: Yeah, couldn't agree more. Great. It's so great, great, so great to be on with you, Kristen, and and, and to reminisce also about the, <laughs> the past. It's yeah. great to see you.
2: Yeah, thank you so much. I've enjoyed it.
1: So so, Harlan, you know, COVID has seemingly fallen by the wayside as the war on Ukraine wages on, but it's not disappeared. We're still counting more than a thousand deaths per day. Uh, those are far, far above levels that we ever imagined possible before this pandemic. And by the way, this Friday, um, March 11th, is the two-year anniversary of the World Health Organization declaring this an official pandemic. So. You know we're two years into it, and we still got a lot of um, work to do. And you and I had the great privilege of working with a group of academics, former policy leaders, um, and other um, scholars on uh, what we've called the COVID roadmap, the next normal, and. It was, I think, fairly well received by both the administration as well as the public. It was released publicly just two days ago, and I was curious to know what type of feedback you've gotten about it over the last 48 hours that it's become more public and what you think are the biggest take-home messages from it.
0: Yeah, and maybe it's good to give people just a little bit of perspective on this. This It's led by Zeke Emanuel and brought together so many people, and it was really quite a quite a lesson to me i almost a masterclass in how you could assemble a large group and find a path towards a constructive contribution to, to the administration government officials find something that might be helpful to them i mean we, we there may be points where we're trying to push the government but we're certainly not trying to embarrass them we recognize this is a very hard job to try to manage a country with very diverse opinions and for whom um, much harm has been incurred and it was uh, just, gosh, such a privilege to be able to work with people and 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 bring in lots of opinions and then distill it into a set of recommendations. I've I found that people who've sat down with it and spent time with the report have been responding very positively. They've thought that it helps consolidate our current knowledge and, and has a set of recommendations that, that are helpful in, in setting the path forward. We also have found that the administration has had what I think is a wonderful attitude, sort of embracing external input, trying to figure out how that fits regard, with regard to what resources they have and other constraints that they're dealing with. And although the war is taking a lot of attention in the White House, there, I, there's a lot of smart people who are still working very hard every day trying to figure out this path forward with regard to the pandemic. And, and I think, I find uh, that gives me confidence that, that this isn't being let go, it's not being forgotten, but instead, uh, you know, these people are still dedicated toward making the right choices. So it was a good experience. And, and I was happy to see the administration embrace external input, not just from us, but from others as well. But I, I thought that it was really terrific.
1: Yeah, I was impressed, first of all, that I think the news media understood that this was not meant to be, you know, do you wear a mask or don't you wear a mask? That this is a longer term plan, mostly for government but also for the private sector to think about what should our priorities be so we don't keep making the same mistakes over and over again, Uh, looking back and saying, oh, golly gee, this happened again, and we're just as unprepared for it now as we were 18 months ago. And I I agree with you, Zeke Emanuel uh, pulled this together with a a group of other people who really uh, were great organizers of this effort. Um, and facilitated a discussion uh, and a collaboration. I got to meet people that I hadn't really known before, uh, and it was a a two-month effort, and I think we all put our best selves forward, and I think the product is something to be proud of. I hope that our listeners will take a chance to to look at it. The executive summary is only a couple of pages. It's at covidroadmap.org. Um, And we'll hopefully link it to the, uh, to our uh, transcript for the podcast.
0: Yeah, that's terrific. A lot of busy people who made time uncompensated, you know, he was able to assemble a lot of people well intentioned, just wanted to make a contribution. And, and yeah, it was, it's nice how people will take a look at it. You've been listening to health and Veritas with Harlan Krumholtz and Howie Foreman.
1: So how did we do to give us your feedback or to keep the conversation going? You can find us on Twitter.
0: Um, at H-M-K-Y-A-L-E. That's H-M-K Yale.
1: And I'm at the Howie. That's at T-H-E-H-O-W-I-E.
0: Health and Veritas is produced with the Yale School of Management. Thanks to our researcher, Sherry Wang, and to our producer, Miranda Schaefer. Talk to you soon, Howie.
1: Thanks very much, Harlan. Talk to you soon.